Oh, that was wonderful. Thank you. Uh, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Catalyst. My name is JR. I'm the, the teaching pastor here. And if you were here during the pre-show, I mentioned I was talking about the trip to Israel that I got to take when, uh, back in 2011, so it's been over a decade. Uh, but I, I went with a friend of mine named Thomas, who is a priest in the Roman Catholic Church. And that proved to uh, make a, a trip that was already kind of one of those once-in-a-lifetime trips even more so because of how many of the holy sites the Catholic Church runs. And so we would, for instance, go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Or, okay, I'll talk about the Church of the Nativity. So Church of the Nativity is in Bethlehem uh, in Nativity Square. It's one of like three sites in the whole of the Holy Land that we're relatively certain is like actually the site. Because a lot, a lot of the places, they didn't build a church there until like a thousand years later. So like if you go to the Sea of Galilee and go to the church of the Sermon on the Mountain, which is beautiful, it's this, uh, it's this eight-sided church because there's eight beatitudes. That's, you know, blessed are the poor, blessed are the, we- the meek, blessed, you know. Um, <laughs> and the priests that were there were like, yeah, man, no one knows where that happened. Like, this church was built a thousand years later. We just chose a hill that had a really nice view. And, but, and it's true, like, it's gorgeous. Like, you're, you're like, this could have been the spot, but no one knows, and they don't, that's not really the point, right? So anyway, all of that to say, the Church of the Nativity is one of, like, three spots that, like, without a time machine, we're as sure as we can be, that is really the, like, it really does mark the place where Jesus was born. Uh, so we go in, and there's a giant line. To, so, so when you go into the main church building, this is beautiful, ancient church. Uh, I think it was built in like the 400s or something like that. So just, yeah, amazing stained glass. They've got all of these like mosaic floors that are, are they, they have like blocked off so you can look over, but you can't walk on them because they're, you know, ancient mosaic floors. Uh, and then to actually get to the spot that marks the, the, the place where uh, the cave is that Jesus was born, uh, you have to go down, and then, you know, they've, they've, you know, they tried to take care of it, right? So there's, they've got this whole shrine built around it and stuff. There's this huge line to get there. And so, you know, Thomas and I go in the building, and we're like, oh, you know, we'll eventually go wait in the line, but we're just sort of walking around, looking at stuff, and we see this door. And we're like, oh, what's through this door? Oh, there's stairs. What's down these stairs? And it turns out we accidentally went down the exit and like cut the line and were in the spot. And uh, people were giving us dirty looks, but no one said anything because Thomas was in his clerical collar and he's like, well, he's a priest. So, you know, he must, that's what I'm saying. Like we got all this like special treatment sort of by accident because Thomas was a priest. So we'd go to a site and he'd go up and talk to the, the Franciscan monks who were running it. And I don't know if they have like a code word or a special handshake. I did not get to learn it, obviously, because I'm not a Catholic priest. So the, he would like go talk to them for a minute and then they would be like, oh yeah, 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 come this way. And then we would get some kind of like bonus tour or something. It was amazing. It was incredible. And again, I cannot overemphasize it had absolutely nothing to do with me. <laughs> I was 100% a tag along, right? Like all the stuff that we got to do, if I had not been there, we would have still got to do them, right? It had nothing to do with me at all. It was 100% because of who I was with, right? Because I was with Thomas, who, who was an insider with this organization. And so uh, as, I was, as I was preparing the message for today, I kept thinking about that experience because that's what, that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about uh, fulfilling God's calling on our lives, both our individual callings, but also our calling as a church. And 
I think a lot of us feel like pretty overwhelmed by that idea right now. We feel sort of tired coming out of 2022, moving into 2023. A lot of us, I think we talked about last week, feel like we're just kind of stumbling into the new year. Uh, so we're, we're missing a lot of that like New Year's energy that, that we've been able to marshal in, in previous years. And I want to suggest to us that maybe it's okay if we feel overwhelmed by God's calling on us. Uh, maybe that's actually a sign that we have tapped into God's calling on us and not just something that we can do for ourselves. Uh, and that maybe what is most important is not measuring how, how well we're doing by the impact we're making, but rather by how faithful we are to God. Because if it's God's calling, then ultimately it's God's responsibility to get it done. And, and what we are to do as God's people, as God's followers, is... Uh, not so much take that burden on ourselves, but trust that the one who called us is faithful to us. And so uh, I wanted to try to make some space for all of those experiences today, for all of the, the feelings of exhaustion and weariness that we might have. Uh, also those, hopefully that sense of excitement and anticipation as we think about what's ahead of us. Uh, but ultimately I want to invite us to this space of resting in who God is and how God calls us and how God is faithful to us. Because uh, the moment we try to start doing these things on our own power is the moment we're, we're destined to fail. Uh, and so in, I know that's a lot, but we're going to be kind of hanging out in all those spaces this morning. So before we go too much further, I want to hand it over to Nathan and to the worship team. Uh, and I want to invite y'all to stand with me as we begin singing together. So Nathan, if y'all would take it away. We are currently in the church season of Epiphany, uh, and in the church calendar, you know, we begin with Advent, which is preparing for Christmas, anticipating, and making sure that we're ready for Jesus to enter into the world, which we celebrate both as Jesus's arrival on that first Christmas, but also the anticipation of Jesus's return in the second coming. Uh, in Epiphany, then, we ask the question, what does it mean to say that God is with us, that Jesus is Emmanuel, right? And, and so in Epiphany, we really press on the idea that when Jesus arrived, it wasn't just for a small select group of people, but it was for the whole world. And so this, this year, our Epiphany series is called Spark. And we're looking at what it, what it means to say that uh, Jesus's example is what gives meaning to our faith, what shapes our faith, what really ignites our faith uh, for this next year ahead of us. We began last week by looking at a figure in the book of Isaiah who's called the servant. And last week we saw that uh, most likely the servant is this sort of idealized imagining of God's perfect follower, right? The prophet essentially designed the ideal servant of God. And so when we look at this servant, we see a couple of different things. One, we see a prefiguring of Jesus, because that's who we understand Jesus to be. When Jesus became human, he showed us what it means to follow God perfectly. So, so we see a lot of resonance between the way Isaiah describes the servant and then also what we see in Jesus. And then, of course, we also see God's calling on our own lives. If this is God's ideal servant, well, then that's, that's who we are also called to be. Uh, so we, last week, we started kind of building those connections. Uh, this week, we're going to take that further. Uh, this week, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 49. So you can go ahead and turn there or flip there or click there, however you're getting there uh, with me. If you grab one of the free Bibles out of the back, uh, that's on page 434. You can keep that Bible if you'd like. Uh, but as we're turning to Isaiah 49, this is again in a part of the book that scholars call Second Isaiah. 
So it was probably written a couple of hundred years after the original Isaiah wrote, and, and it was written by students in his school of prophecy. So uh, last week I used the example of, you know, Republicans might call themselves Lincoln Republicans or, you know, Roosevelt Democrats or something like that. And what they mean when they say that is that they are trying to embody the same kinds of political principles that that ancient person, I mean, relatively ancient, right, ancient to us, uh, person said. And so the, the, the Isaiah school of prophecy was very much the same thing. These are people who studied this prophet's ways, studied their, uh, his example, and then wrote in his lineage. And so second Isaiah dates from a time right after an event we call the exile, which was in, when the Babylonian empire conquered and destroyed the kingdom of Judah and scattered God's people uh, across the world it was a cultural apocalypse. It was absolutely devastating. And so Isaiah, second Isaiah, is, created this, uh, this servant as an encouragement and a call to people who were feeling absolutely uh, lost, absolutely completely destroyed. I mean, again, they've, they've lived through a cultural apocalypse. Every social structure that gave their, their whole society meaning was gone. Uh, all of the people who had led their, their culture and their country were just taken away. Uh, and they were left uh, literally not knowing how to, uh, how, how to start over. Uh, and these are the people that, I, that, that Second Isaiah was writing to. And these are the people that the servant was designed to speak to. So uh, again, last week I said, for those of us who feel like we're just kind of like staggering into 2023, who are feeling like, you know, maybe we are too tired or our, our church is too small uh, to really make any kind of a difference. Like we are in the exact same boat, well not the exact same, but we're in a really similar boat to uh, those people that were the recipients of this original prophecy. And so I want to read uh, another of the entries in the servant chronicles that Isaiah created uh, here in Isaiah 49. And I want to just work through some of the observations uh, that the servant makes about what their calling is. Because I, uh, I think probably, if you're anything like me, you'll find these really inspiring, but also a little bit challenging and maybe even overwhelming. So uh, I want to be, uh, let's begin in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 49. The prophet says, listen to me. Pay attention, all you who are in distant lands, you who are far away. The Lord called me before my birth. From within the womb, he called me by name. He made my words of judgment as sharp as a sword. He has hidden me in the shadow of his hand. I'm like a sharp arrow in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, and you will bring me glory. Okay. I love how it starts out talking about how uh, God created us and called us. I think that's a really beautiful and powerful thing. And I actually want to put a pin in that and return to that a little bit later. So just kind of hold that in the back of your head, right? That, that the servant is one that God created and called and God has very specific intentions for it. And that's good news. Where I really want to kind of hang out for a moment is where the servant said that uh, God has given them words that are like a sharp sword of judgment or that they're like a, a, a deadly arrow in God's hand, right? Um, now, I think at first blush, maybe, maybe that's a little bit intimid intimidating or terrifying because I think a lot of us have learned to be afraid of God's judgment, uh, we've been presented with the idea of a judgmental, angry God, uh, and that feels 
feels a little bit scary. In fact, it's, it's images like this that I think often get used when you hear people pit like the Jesus of the New Testament against the angry God of the Old Testament, right? And they're like, well, the angry God of the Old Testament is all about hellfire and judgment and blah. And that's like, it's, it's passages like this, right? Where God says, I'm, send, I'm sending my servant as my sharp sword of judgment. And people are like, Ooh. I mean, you know, what else are you supposed to do with a sharp sword, right? Uh, and so... I just want to acknowledge that, but then I want, I want you again to try to remember the context that the servant is speaking into. This is a conquered people. They've been at the other end of the sharp swords, right? And they have been conquered by an evil empire, one that is, uh, one that is oppressive, one that is unjust, one that has a vision for the world that looks nothing like the vision that we see from the God of the scriptures, and so into this world that is seething with injustice, that is characterized by oppression and enslavement and cruelty, God says, I'm sending my ideal servant with a sharp sword of judgment. Judgment is discerning, it's separating. In fact, uh, this is the Hebrew, but it, I, I really like the Greek uh, is actually from the word, the same word where we have scissors. So it's literally like to cut things, right? To separate them. And that's what you do when you judge, right? Parents, your parents have, a, have more than one kid. Your kids come to you and they're fighting about someone did something to someone else. What's your job, right? You got to cut through and figure out what's going on and try to, <laughs> try to do something that's going to make everyone the same amount of mad, right? Um, that's, the, that's sort of the image that the servant has here, that their calling, their job, is to go into the world and to separate truth from fiction to separate falsehood from reality, to separate good from evil. And again, I think when you look around our world, it's not hard to imagine that we have that same kind of calling. We live in a world of alternative facts and fake news, right? We live in a world of biases and hidden agendas and warring parties that all claim to be, you know, the sole hope for our world. And I think it's easy to imagine God saying to God's people today, you are my sharp sword of judgment and I'm anointing you to go into the world and separate truth from fiction. Separate lies from reality. Now again, this is where I say, maybe that's inspiring, hopefully that's inspiring. To me, it's also a little bit overwhelming. I see the state of our world and I wonder like, who, who could do that? Who really has a hope of speaking truth into that context. Just wonder. And so, if, if, like me, you're maybe equal parts inspired and overwhelmed, I think you'll find the servant's response to this declaration of their mission to be really uh, comforting. Okay, here's, let's, let's go ahead and read verse four. I replied, right? So God has said this, right? You're going to be my sharp sword. You're going to be my hidden arrow. And then I, the servant replies, but my work seems so useless. I've spent my strength for nothing and to no purpose. But I leave it all in the Lord's hand. I will trust God for my reward. I got to tell you, friends, when I, was, when I was reading this passage, preparing for this message, and I got to where the servant said, my work seems so useless. I sort of just collapsed. I felt that way, you know, especially over the last few years. 
I feel like no matter what I do, it doesn't seem to have any sort of impact. Um, and, you know, folks who have been around Catalyst for a while, you know, we've lost, we've lost people. We've lost, you know, some people have moved, and that, you know, that always happens, especially in a town like Rowlett that is so transitory. Um, you know, but we've lost some folks specifically because we were trying to stand up for what's right and to care for the vulnerable and to do all of the things that God calls us to do. And there were people that said, yeah, I don't, I don't like that, and they left. You know, people who, I, you know, I baptized them or their kids or did their marriages or, um, you know, shared communion with them week after week after week. And at some point, they're just like, eh, I'm out. That's, that hurts. And it's easy to feel useless. It's easy to feel like, well, are we, are we really doing anything? Am I really doing anything? So, so when I'm reading this passage, and again, what we have here is someone who is like literally custom designed to be the ideal follower of God, and they say, well, I feel pretty useless. Oh, okay, so my feelings of inadequacy don't mean that I don't have enough faith. They don't mean that I'm somehow a bad follower because the ideal follower, one that was literally made up, right? This is, we're, not, we're not reading a transcript from a court document or something like that, right? This was the prophet designing their ideal imagining of God's faithful follower. And this follower feels like their work is useless. This follower feels like maybe they're not making a big enough impact on the world. I'm like, oh, well, okay. And that doesn't solve any problems necessarily, but it does, it does give me a sense of comfort and a sense of solidarity and a sense of realizing that my experience of uselessness is not what God sees when God looks at me, when God looks at you, when God looks at us. That we can feel those things, and it's okay to feel those things. God's perfect follower feels those things. What matters is what comes next. And that's what I love about the servant's response. Okay? My work feels so useless, and yet, I'm going to leave it in the Lord's hands. And yet, I'm going to trust that this is God's mission, not my mission, that God is responsible for this. I am not responsible for this. That God is the one who ultimately finally measures effectiveness, not me. So it's okay that I feel the way I feel, and it's even okay that I voice feeling the way I feel. But at the end of the day, I'm going to leave the final verdict in God's hands. I don't want to rush past that. Because again, for me, that was, that was huge. It was almost like, well, we're done. That's the message, right? I know there's some verses left, but I, we got it. I'm good. I'm out. But what I do want to do is invite the worship team back up, and I want us to just, um, I want us to hang out in this promise that God makes. And I want to invite you, if you felt any of those same feelings that I just gave voice to, you can feel those things. God's perfect follower feels those things. And you can give voice to them, I think, while we're singing this next song. Because when we do that, then by faith, we are leaving it in God's hands. And that's where it belongs. So would you stand with me one more time as we sing? We've listened to the servant speak, right? We've listened to 
the servant uh, share their calling, share how God is inviting them to engage the world around them, a world that is much too large, much too overwhelming. And we've, we've heard the Spirit confess their own sense of inadequacy and uh, how that's, that's mirrored by a trust that, that ultimately they're just going to do, uh, do what God calls them to do and leave it to God. Now we're going to hear God speak in response to that. We're going to hear God address the servant's own anxieties and, and our own anxieties. And so I want you to hear uh, how God responds to what the, the servant has given voice to. This is in verses 5 through 7. Now the Lord speaks, the one who formed me in my mother's womb to be his servant, who commissioned me to bring Israel back to him. The Lord has honored me and my God has given me strength. And he says, you will do more than restore the people of Israel to me. I will make you a light to the Gentiles and you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. The Lord, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel says to the one who is despised and rejected by the nations, to the one who is the servant of rulers, kings will stand at attention when you pass by. Princes will also bow low because of the Lord, the faithful one, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Okay. God speaks to the servant, and, and I, I'm just staggered here because uh, the first thing God does is say, uh, don't worry, it's way worse than you think. Because the prophet has it in his mind that his job is to speak to Israel, to speak to God's people, the ones who have been devastated by exile, and to, to get them in ship shape, right? To call them back to faithfulness, to say, I know you've been devastated, I know you've been destroyed, but the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is your God, and that God has not abandoned you, and you can still return and be this God's faithful people, and God will restore you. And even that, in the wake of this cultural apocalypse we now call the exile, feels overwhelming. Okay? So there, that's what the servant has had in mind when the servant has been saying, I feel useless, I feel like my work doesn't have any impact, and God says, yeah, 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 uh, you're, you're going to do that, but also, you're also going to be a light to the entire world, to all the Gentiles. It's almost like, yeah, all of that business that you were so worried about, that's like, that's like the preface. That's, we're not even in chapter one of your mission yet, that's just like the, the before stuff. So I'm, uh, again, I just want to re restate here, right? The servant was already overwhelmed, and God said, it's way worse than you thought. You have a, and I say worse, right? Tongue in cheek. It's, it is actually the original mission that God commissioned Israel to do. At Mount Sinai, that's Charlton Heston, Ten Commandments, Golden Calf, all that, right? At Mount Sinai, when God first said, if you will be my people, I will be your God, and the people said, we're in. God said, I will make you a kingdom of priests. Right? When God, before that, made the covenant with Abram, God said, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky, and you will be a light to the Gentiles. So this, this whole, you're for the whole world business is not a new thing God is adding into the contract when they're too distracted to pay attention. Right? This has been the plan from the beginning, and I mean, y'all get this, right? The, the, in the face of, you know, all of it, they've kind of shrunken their focus. 
down to something that, while overwhelming, still seems at least a little bit manageable. And God is here blowing it back up and saying, no, 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 the plan hasn't changed. Right? The thing that we started with, that's still the thing. And I promise you, servant, faithful servant, if you will be faithful to me, then those very kings and princes that conquered you will be bowing down before you. The ones who are laughing at you now will be paying you respect. Not because of what you can do, but because the one who created the heavens and the earth is the same one that created you and called you. Now, there's no timeline on this, right? We don't know if this is even something that's going to happen in the servant's lifetime. What we know is that God has basically reaffirmed to the servant, the plan has not changed. My designs in the beginning are my designs in the now. And when I called you in the beginning, I'm re-upping that call now. Nothing has changed. I will continue to be faithful to you. So the question that's in front of the servant, the question that's in front of us, is will we continue to say yes to God? Will we continue to respond in faith? Will we believe what the servant is working to believe in this passage, which is that it's not our effectiveness that is the measure of our faith, but rather our faithfulness to God? Right? Can we really trust that this is God's mission, not my mission? And can we continue to do the next right thing? To just, to just focus on the next thing that God has for us and trust that while we handle the stuff that God has given us to handle, God is taking care of the big picture. That is, I will say, you all know this, right? I'm type A. It's difficult for me. I'm a big picture thinker. I'm like, I'll do that, but can you just show me the whole thing? Can you just show me how my little part fits into your overall strategy and, and I'll be good. You won't hear another peep out of me, right? And God says, no, right? Mostly probably because I'm not smart enough. We, we realize this, right? Um, uh, because God is God and I'm not. Uh, but what God invites us to is a faithful yes to do the next right thing, to continue to persist in those spiritual practices that help us to rest in God. Right? So am I making time to meditate and be in silence with God? Right? To, just, to just sit with God and allow God to love me rather than focusing on how effective I am at the things that I do? Am I taking time to be in prayer, to center myself in God and to, to allow God to show me how God is present to me throughout my day uh, when I get so distracted? Right? Am I immersing myself in scripture so that I begin to see my story as a part of the story that God is telling rather than something I'm in charge of? Am I continuing to practice generosity so that I'm forming myself after the God who has given me everything rather than a culture that tells me everything comes with strings attached? Am I doing these things or am I allowing myself to be caught up in worrying that I'm not doing enough? I told you that uh, I wanted you to stick a pen in verse 1 so we come back to it at the end. And here's, here's why I want to do that. As we approach the communion table. Because the servant's story doesn't begin when God calls them as a prophet. 
The servant's story begins before they had a conscious thought. So I want to put verse 1 back up there and allow you to read that as a way, and as a way of bringing us into the communion meal. The servant says, The Lord called me before my birth. From within the womb, he called me by name. Now again, I think there's a way to read this individualistically, but keep in mind that the, the servant is God's idealized version of, of Israel. We saw that several times in the passage today, right? And it's God's, it's God's idealized version of the church today as well. So there's a way of saying it like, we could say it like this, right? Um, the church has been doing God's work in the world long before I was a pastor, long before you were uh, a person who was, who was seeking out church, seeking out faith, right? The church has had a mission that, that is way older and bigger than any of us in this room, bigger than Catalyst, bigger than our denomination. And ultimately, it's up to God to handle these things, not to me, not to you, right? And so we, we come to the communion table even as a response. God sets the table for us. God sets a place at the table for us. And God says, anyone who is hungry, come and eat of the bread of life. Anyone who is thirsty, come and drink of the waters that quench our eternal thirst. All, all it is for us is to say, okay, yes, I want that. I want to come and receive the place at the table that God has set for me. And so before we come to the table today, before, before we engage in that sort of holy yes that God makes available to us, uh, I want to lead us in a prayer of examine. I want to give you four questions and give you some space to reflect prayerfully on those in either in silence or if you want to you know discuss them quietly with you know uh, someone who's who's at your table or, or with a family member or something you can do that um, but again these are meant to, these are meant to be prayers sentences prayers that help us examine our lives and see where god's fingerprints are and after we've done that i'll pray for all of us together and we'll receive communion together here's the first question i want you to consider think about the week that brought us here right when in the last week have I rested in God's love for me? Not done things to earn God's love, right? But just simply cleared out some space to, to allow God to love us with no strings attached. Now, still thinking about the, the week that's brought us here, what has kept me from resting into God's love more? Now think about the week that's ahead of us. What in the coming week might keep me from God's love? 
And finally, how can I rest in God's love in this coming week? What is, what is, how is God calling me to just receive? Pray together. God, you have gathered us this morning that we might encounter yet again this servant that your uh, prophet Isaiah dreamed up that shows us what a, an ideal follower of you looks like. And uh, we've received the comfort from seeing the servant's own doubts and insecurities and how they ultimately pivot those into a faithfulness to you. And so we approach your table today, many of us plagued by those same doubts and insecurities. We have a lot of those same kinds of questions, and, and we ask that as we receive these elements, that they would be a spiritual food for us, that in receiving your communion meal, we might too receive the grace that we need to respond in faith the way the servant has, to say, I take all of these, all of these things that I've brought in with me, and I leave them in the Lord's hands. We want to believe the words that you speak over us. Help us to. Give us the grace that we need to live into that belief. We offer these prayers now and we approach your communion table in the name of your son, Jesus. The night Jesus was betrayed, this was the meal that he shared with his disciples. During that meal that he took bread and broke it and gave it to them and said, this is my body broken for you. Take it and eat it. When the meal was finished, he gave them a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood that is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take it and drink it. And so now we too eat and drink, and as we do, we remember Jesus' death until he returns. As you're going, I want to reemphasize uh, the, best, the best response to these first couple of weeks of these epiphany messages uh, really is spiritual practices. Uh, because when we do spiritual practices well, things like reading scripture or prayer or giving or meditation, uh, again, we're not like checking lists or earning brownie points or something like that. What we're doing is creating space in our very busy lives uh, to just simply be with God. And a lot of those rhythms and routines help us to do that. They help us to clear out space from everything else and just, just be alone with God. Uh, and so if you have never done spiritual practices or if it's been a while, again, if you're virtual with us, there should be a link in the description to our spiritual practices guide. If you're here in the building, it's on the wall that says connect with Catalyst. As you walk out, you can just grab a little pamphlet there. They're just a little quick start guide to get you, help, uh, get you started with some of those uh, because I think it's, it's not intuitive to read scripture for transformation rather than information. Right? It's, not, it's not intuitive to pray in a way that uh, has a lot of silence mixed in with that because we're trying to listen as much as we're trying to talk. Uh, it's not intuitive to give in a way that's, again, not so much about uh, getting the tax credit or, or whatever, but in a way that's imitating the generosity of God. And so uh, the Quick Start Guide is to help us do that. And if you're kind of stuck with where to respond, maybe choosing a spiritual practice and, and using these, this next uh, several weeks of epiphany to rest in that practice could be a good place to get started with learning to listen to God and listen to what God is doing uh, in our midst here as a congregation and in our world.
uh, in that light, I'd like to invite you to stand with me as I dismiss us with a blessing. Uh, Catalyst, as you go today, would you go as a people who has been called to an impossible task? Uh, and it's okay to feel overwhelmed by that because if we, if we felt like it was something we could accomplish, then it probably means we're not dreaming big enough. It's not God-sized, it's us-sized. So don't be afraid of those feelings of being overwhelmed or feeling like it's too much because that's a sign uh, that you're thinking along the lines that God has called us to. As you go then, go not in a sense of anxiety or fear, but in a, uh, the confidence that comes with faith. And resting in the fact that if God called us, then God will be faithful to complete that call uh, on the day of Christ Jesus. Go in the grace and peace of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we will see you next week.